Hey, Scott here with Grace Bible Church. Before we get into this message, I just wanted to thank you for streaming this sermon. We pray that each week you are challenged by who God is and what he has done for you. Now, this is never meant to be a substitute for you to be an active member of a community of faith. If you live in the Hollidaysburg area, or if you're in town for any reason, we encourage you to gather with us on Sunday mornings for our word and worship. You can learn more about what God is doing through our church body on our website, gbclive.org. Most of us, I would say, are transactional by nature. You know, we go to work, we put in time, and then we receive a paycheck for that time that we put in. Uh, this is a familiar transaction for us. Uh, this is something that is good and right. It's something that uh, when things are functioning well, that's how it works. And if you think about it, really transactions are everywhere in our life, not just work. Uh, you know, whether it's a bank transaction, some kind of money transaction. If we go to a restaurant, there's a transaction happening there. Uh, in our relationships, there are transactions that happen. It's just kind of how we're wired. If we give something to someone, uh, oftentimes we expect that they might give something to us. Or if we do something for someone, we might expect that they do something then in return for us. Quick example of this would be you go out to dinner with some friends and you buy this time. Uh, What happens next time? Uh, Does that mean if you go out with the same friends that they buy the next time? Uh, are you keeping track? Who has bought how many times? You know, as soon as you're into those kinds of questions, you're talking transactions, right? And typically, we think of most of our transactions in uh, horizontal relationships. The gospel is fundamentally a transaction that has happened between God and us, a vertical transaction with horizontal ramifications. And the beauty of the gospel is that it frees us from being defined by our horizontal transactions. It frees us from being held captive to those kinds of transactions. We are now defined by who God is and what he has done for us in this gospel transaction. So in our text today, we're going to see how this gospel transaction that has happened between God and those of us who are Christians moves out horizontally and affects everyone we come in contact with. So this this most important of transactions has incredible horizontal ramifications. So the main idea of the sermon today that I would like you to kind of wrap your brain around, so if you are taking notes and you want to jot this down, this is the main idea. It's this. We must do good to others because of God's goodness to us. We must do good to others because of God's goodness to us. And I'll say that a few more times as we go through. If you're newer with us or uh, you've only been around for a little while, uh, you may not know this is part six in this series on Titus. So, Uh, This has been a six-part series stretched out over almost two years. So part one happened in November of 2020, which is a little hard to believe. Uh, Almost two years ago, today is the final uh, part of this series. So we'll wrap 
Paul's letter to Titus, or at least wrap our series in that today. And I had no idea, so I was thinking about this as I was preparing, I had no idea when I started the series in Titus back in November 2020, that by the time we finished the Titus series, that we would be aware that Pastor Darren was retiring uh, next year. I had no idea, none of that is on uh, my radar in 2020, right? So how much more then is it important for us to wrap our minds around the importance of godly leaders in the church, the qualifications of godly leaders, the importance of what makes a church healthy? How much more then does it feel like Titus is just ridiculously applicable for our church in this season? Obviously, the Spirit does what he wants with all of those things. But if you miss some of those parts, uh, you can find them all at gbclive.org. We have a sermon archive there. I do want to give you a quick recap because uh, if you've ever picked up a letter and read only the last paragraph, that's what it will feel like if you are just popping in, right? So you have to know that everything Paul's going to say in chapter 3 is built on everything he's already said in the first part of the letter in the first two chapters. So... Uh, From the beginning, and really every time we've talked Titus, we have said that the main theme, kind of the umbrella over the whole letter, is this. God's grace revealed in the gospel leads to godliness in the lives of his people. All right? Whole theme of Titus. And really, I've been tempted to make that the main idea of every sermon, every part, because it's just baked all the way through there. But that's kind of not the way that works. So let me say it again. God's grace revealed in the gospel leads to godliness in the lives of his people. So in part one, we kind of really just overviewed that. Paul takes the first four verses and just really just bangs that out. All right. So uh, God shapes his people with the gospel for his mission. Then he spends the rest of the letter explaining that. So in part two, we focus in on leaders and we said that leaders must be shaped by the gospel in all of life. Part three then was the importance of those leaders confronting error for the sake of the health of the church. Part four, we focused sound doctrine. We said sound doctrine shapes the life of a healthy church. And then actually just not too long ago, we, were in, we had part five, which was the tail end of chapter two. And we said that the gospel reveals grace that both rescues us and empowers us. And it was those, those two, rescuing grace that empowers that enables us to continually repent, to intentionally obey, and to expectantly wait. So that was kind of where we left off at the end of chapter 2. Those are the rhythms of the Christian life. We're repenting, we're obeying, we're waiting. Okay. So now, what does that look like to move out to those who don't know Jesus? Right. What does that look like to be on mission in these rhythms of life as gospel people? And that's really what Paul is going to focus in on in chapter 3. So that brings us back around to our main idea, and it's this. We must do good to others because of God's goodness to us. So much has been said already in Titus about godliness. Okay? We said that godliness is gospel-fueled good works. So just kind of glancing back over the landscape In chapter 1, verse 8, elders or church leaders must be lovers of good. Makes sense as you go through why that's the case. In chapter 2, verse 7, Titus must show himself in all respects to be a model of good works. In 2.14, which was where we were at last time, 
Christ has redeemed a people who are zealous for good works. And now three times here in chapter 3, verse 1, verse 8, verse 14, be ready for every good work. Those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. So what's the takeaway here at the end of Titus? Godliness matters. All right? Doing good matters. Good works matter. To be clear, we are not saved by works. But saving faith works. So we better understand the relationship between good works and the gospel. And really that's what Paul is going to hone in on and hammer home to Titus that he must insist and remind the Cretans of. So I want to give you three ways that our good works relate to the gospel. So that is kind of the main headings for today. Three ways that our good works relate to the gospel. And I'll give them to you. Uh, If you want to write them down, you can. I'll say them multiple times throughout the course of how we go. They all start with our good works. So relation number one, our good works come into play only after we believe the gospel. That's verses three through eight. I'll say that again. Our good works come into play only after we believe the gospel. Relation number two, our good works witness to those who don't believe the gospel. That's verses one and two. Number two, again, our good works witness to those who don't believe the gospel. And then relation number three, our good works give evidence that we believe the gospel. And that's verses nine through 11. We'll say them again. Our good works come into play only after we believe the gospel. Number two, our good works witness to those who don't believe the gospel. And then number three, our good works give evidence that we believe the gospel. And so you'll notice uh, as we go through this, we're going to take these out of order from how they come in the text. So we're going to start with verses three through eight, and we're going to land there for the most significant part of the sermon because that is the ground on which you can accomplish verses 1 and 2. It's the only ground on which you can accomplish verses 1 and 2. So what Paul is going to say that Christians need to do in verses 1 and 2 is impossible apart from verses 3 through 8. Okay, so we're going to start there, and then I'll explain that as we go. So relation number 1, our good works come into play only after we believe the gospel. Check out verse 3 of chapter 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That doesn't sound good. (laughs) Okay? As is typically the case, we need to understand how bad the bad news is before we can understand truly how good the good news is. Imagine you're swimming in the ocean. Maybe you like to go to the beach. Uh, Maybe you like to uh, swim a little bit in the ocean. Imagine you're swimming in the ocean, minding your own business. You're doing fine. All of a sudden, somebody comes rushing in, grabs you, drags you back to shore, says, you're welcome. 
I don't know about you, but as soon as I catch my breath, I'd be like, what in the world are you doing? I was swimming, not drowning. Right? When you're not drowning, rescue is unwelcome. But when you are drowning, rescue is joyfully welcomed. Paul is reminding these believers that their own rescue was desperately needed. You might be thinking, is it really that bad? You know, okay. Okay, so let's look at this verse. It starts with foolishness and ends with hatred. Okay, the Bible says that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Right, so foolishness, bad starting point from the get-go. But hatred is kind of once everything has progressed from that worldview, it results in nothing but animosity for people around you. In between those two brackets, we've got disobedience, we've got deception, we've got enslavement to passions and pleasures, we've got malice, which is wickedness, and envy towards others. Not just hating others, but being hated by others. So there is, there is a lot of not good works happening here. There's a lot of bad news. And the reality is, they weren't just drowning, they were dead, like at the bottom of the sea. Not only were they dead, spiritually, not a single person in this scenario deserved saving. Friend, if you are not a Christian, this is the scenario in which you find yourself. I don't mean to be offensive to you, but I do mean to be truthful with you. You are not just drowning. You are spiritually dead. You might be thinking, I'm not really that, I'm not really that bad. Like, that, certainly not. Titus 3.3, bad. The Bible is clear that unless you are perfect, you are not good enough for God to save you. What does Pastor Darren often say? You want to go to heaven, you got to be as good as God is, right? Have you ever lied about anything? Just, just a little bit, maybe? Have you ever spoken unkindly about someone else? You may not think you're that bad, but I'm guessing probably none of us thinks that we're perfect. Unless you are perfect, you are currently under God's wrath, destined for eternal punishment in hell. That's bad news. But there is good news. Verse 4. And we're going to camp here for a little while. This is one sentence, by the way. This is what Paul does. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Hallelujah. This is a glorious passage. Just 
caked with theology that calls us to worship. That's why we opened our service today with a call to worship from this passage. It is mind-blowing. And the reason it's mind-blowing is because not a single one of us deserves that. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, that sounds a little bit like Titus 2.11, the grace of God that appeared, bringing salvation to all people, when that appeared, when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, this is good news for all people. Titus and the Cretan Christians needed to be reminded that they were saved not because of works that they had done, not because of anything about them, but because of who God is and what he had done. The text says in verse 4, according to his mercy. In Titus 2.14, we saw that Christ purified for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, purified, cleansed. We're not talking rub some dirt off, change your clothes. We're talking whole life reorientation. We're talking death to life. The word regeneration means rebirth. The Bible uses the language of being born again in John 3 and 1 Peter 2. New creation in 2 Corinthians 5. New birth happens at the heart level only through the Holy Spirit. I love this. Who is poured out richly, generously on them, not like a little bit. Richly through the work of Christ. This conjures up connections of the new heart in Jeremiah 31 and the new spirit in Ezekiel 36. Paul's pulling all of these connections together in this crazy theological passage. So Christians, I want us to park here for a few minutes because if there's one thing we're not good at in 2022, it is sustained thinking on something. We've got the next thing. What's the next thing? What's the next video? It's like, so let's, let's camp here for a minute and look at the Trinitarian work in salvation because it is beautiful. It's glorious. Paul says, God, our Savior's mercy results in new birth given by the Holy Spirit because of the work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. So I love that. God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Savior, bracketing the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, most often, rightly, we think Father, Son, Spirit. That's how Jesus told us to baptize people, right? Like, rightly, we think that. But often how we encounter the Trinitarian God is Father, Spirit, Son. The mercy of the Father is revealed to us by the Spirit as we realize who Jesus is. There's a beautiful cohesion of the Father planning it, the Son accomplishing it, and the Spirit applying it to us. And with that, we say glory to sovereign grace. 
because we don't deserve that. God does all of this, verse 7, so that having been justified or being justified, okay, there's another huge theological term. That just means God declares us to be righteous, not based on anything we have done that's righteous because there's nothing we've done that's righteous. But according to his mercy, he justifies us by his grace. But don't check out yet. That we might become what? Heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's really good news. Jesus died to pay the penalty, not just to take away our sins, but to give us all the benefits of being a son. All the benefits that Jesus enjoys as God's son. Think of the best inheritance you could think of on this planet. Maybe it's a sought-after piece of land. Maybe it's, a, it's the best house you could think of. Maybe it's a particular sum of money. I don't care what it is. Pick it, whatever it is. Get it in your brain. It pales in comparison to the inheritance that you already have in Christ. It pales. If you're not a Christian, we said the bad news was bad, and it is. But the good news is, this God who comes saving is not waiting for you to clean yourself up or make yourself more savable. You actually can't do that. And you can't save yourself, but God doesn't ask you to. He's got that covered. The good news of the gospel is that it's based on who God is and what God does, not on who you are and what you have done. So the right response to this good news is repentance and faith. Turn from your sin. Realize your need of this rescue and put your faith in Christ alone to save you. Will that be today? Will you, will you do that today? If you're not a Christian, consider it. Brings us to verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. What are these things? What Paul has just got done unpacking these huge theological realities. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. He says to Titus, insist on these things. Another way to say that would be stress these things. Stress the gospel. We must stress the gospel because it is only the gospel that is going to lead us out to do good to others. And it is precisely because God has been good to us in our salvation that we then can be good to others. Apart from that work, we cannot. Because of these realities, we must devote ourselves to good works. So kids, 
I'm going to speak to you for just a minute. Everyone else can listen in, uh, wherever kids are in, 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 the, in the worship center here. When your parents talk to you about obedience, that's a good thing. All right? When they ask you to do something, you need to do it. When they confront you about something, you need to respond to that confrontation in a way that is respectful. Obeying your parents is one of the most important things you're called to do at this current season of your life. But do you know that you can try to obey your parents all the time, and that still does not make you right with God? You might obey because you want to please your parents. You might obey because you don't want the consequences of disobeying. You might obey because you just want to be the good kid, right? I want to fly under the radar. I want to be the good kid. There's, there's multiple different reasons why we could obey, and some of those reasons are good, and some of those reasons not so good. But the only thing that makes you right with God is believing the gospel, that message about God's salvation coming to us in Christ. It's only then that obedience becomes good works. It's only flowing out of belief in the gospel that obedience to our parents becomes something that's fully gospel-driven good works. So first and foremost, you gotta believe the gospel. And then once you believe the gospel, you gotta remember your obedience to your parents is not what keeps you in God's favor. As a Christian, you've already got God's favor because it's in Christ. Those who have believed in God are careful to devote themselves to good works. But our good works come into play only after we have believed the gospel. That's relation number one. I told you we'd camp there for the majority. So this brings us to relation number two. Our good works witness to those who don't believe the gospel. We've already seen throughout Titus several places where Paul speaks about Christians and their relationship to those outside the church. In chapter 2, verse 5, in the context of the younger women, uh, he says, Be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. The context there is from outsiders. In the context of bond servants in chapter 2, verse 10, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And now in chapter 3, we've expanded it to everyone and all people. This is verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And here Paul is reminding them of something they already know. That word remind cues us in on the fact they already know this, okay? And he's referring to their conduct with those who are not Christians, those who are outside the church. And you already begin to see why the ground of verses 3 through 8 is so important as we begin to look at what Paul calls us to in verses 1 and 2. Because this begins to put some teeth on our good works. 
What actually does that look like? One commentary sums it up this way. We submit obediently, we serve eagerly, we speak gently, we show humility. Submit obediently, serve eagerly, speak gently, show humility. We can't tackle all of these, so let me just kind of hone in on uh, two of those. We submit to governing authorities. We know from Romans 13, we know from 1 Peter 2, and now here in Titus 3, we are to be submissive to those who have governing authority over us. Being submissive to government authority is challenging for us. And it's not going to get any easier. We are all experiencing the high costs of inflation uh, just due to all that has transpired. Uh, a few weeks ago, I got some heating oil. Woo, yeah. Um, all right, so uh, work on paying that off before I can get some more. And that's the reality of where we are at. And when we get in these kinds of situations, it can be really easy to badmouth the government, to speak poorly of those who are in authority over us because a lot of people around us are speaking that way. Do you know what is countercultural? Christians are countercultural, by the way. Do you know what's countercultural? Honoring those that are in authority over us. Being respectful as we speak of them. Praying for them. Does this mean that we must submit to the government no matter what? No. The Bible is clear. That is not what Christians are called to. Acts 5 is a particular spot where Peter clarifies, we ought to obey God rather than man. So the Bible is clear on that. It doesn't mean we submit uh, lock, stock, and barrel. But let's be sure that when we are going to disobey the government, because there will come that time, it matters how we do it. So let's be sure that when we're going to make that stand, it's, it's a stand on something that is directly contrary to what God calls us to not just something we don't like or something that we find to be an inconvenience or perhaps a preference. I'm not going to draw lines here on what those things are, but I want to remind us to be careful in how we speak about those who are in authority over us. So then the second idea, we speak gently and show humility towards everyone. This is a tough one because I think for most of us, there are lots of people that we tend to speak harshly to or about. And there are lots of people that we have trouble being humble towards. And there could be multiple reasons for that. Let me give you two illustrations to get at what I mean. The first one is how we speak about those we work with. How do we address our coworkers? How do we speak about them when they're not around? Would our speech about them be characterized by gentleness and humility? 
or by harshness and pride. I think many of us justify the way we speak about our coworkers because we think we are justified because we think ourselves to be more highly sought after than we are. Or we, th- we see more value in ourselves than maybe we see in our coworkers. So that kind of gets at this, this humility, this, this pride issue. The second illustration <clears throat> is how we speak about those who are in the LGBTQ community. <clears throat> Frankly, I, I don't think many of us are speaking to folks in that community, but if we are, I hope that we are not speaking to them the way that I hear many of us speak about them. It's really easy to speak harshly about someone you disagree with. That doesn't mean that we should malign them with our words or speak evil of them. Would our speech about those who embrace homosexuality or transgenderism Would our speech about those folks be considered gentle, considerate, or humble? To be clear, okay, this doesn't mean that we don't call out sin or error, okay? We are to consider sinful what the Bible considers sinful. And homosexuality and transgenderism, that entire lifestyle is contrary to God's design for marriage and sex. The Bible's clear that anything contrary to God's design is sin. Yet, we can remain faithful to the Bible and to our convictions and still speak humbly and gently about those who embrace a sinful lifestyle. Let me be clear again. It is loving to confront sin. On any level. That should be normal in the church. Loving to confront sin. It is unloving. Read that as not loving. To harshly and pridefully confront sin. The Bible teaches us to deal with our own issues so that we can have the right mindset to then confront someone else. Well, as soon as you do that, you are going to be humbled. I think when we speak harshly about those who are in the LGBTQ community, we miss an opportunity to unpack the beauty of the story that God has laid out in Scripture because we've compromised our witness and we've done it in the, in the guise of holding to the truth. But what Paul's saying here is holding to the truth looks like gentle, humble witness. What happens is rather than commending the gospel, we harm our witness. 
So by submitting obediently, serving eagerly, speaking gently, showing humility towards everyone, we then commend the gospel to others. You see why we have to be firmly grounded in the gospel as we go out on mission? There's going to be all kinds of things to trip us up. That's the second relation between our good works and the gospel. Our good works witness to those who don't believe the gospel, which brings us to the third and final relation between our good works and the gospel. They give evidence that we believe the gospel. So Paul has laid out here what good works look like towards those who don't believe the gospel. He's grounded it in the gospel itself. So we have a clear picture of what should characterize Christians. These gospel-fueled good works, he says, are excellent and profitable for people. They give evidence of our belief. And and the way we see that is through the contrast that happens in verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. They are not to get caught up in foolish controversies or speculation about who descended from who or arguments about the law. Like all of that stuff was tripping them up, right? All of that stuff was stuff that they were getting caught up in. Paul says it's unfruitful. It's worthless. We might be quick to say that these things don't apply to us, right? I have issues with quarrels about the Old Testament law. Um, We're not uh, in a position to... uh, be worried about whose descendant was who and whose ancestor was who as far as spirituality goes. But don't we tend to get worked up about stuff that's foolish? Don't we tend to get worked up about stuff that's based on our personal preference? I know you do, because I do. (laughs) We're people. We tend to get worked up about that kind of stuff, but all that does is stir up tension in the church. And Paul goes a step further in verse 10. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So this person that causes division in the context of Titus, this letter, most likely would have been someone who agrees with the false teaching that Paul was speaking against. right? So someone who was buying into the false ideas that Paul was speaking against and that Titus was, was proclaiming that good works flows from the gospel and that it is only the gospel that produces good works. That whole gospel that we've been talking about this entire time. It's the absence of those good works in the lives of these people that causes Paul to say they're creating division. It calls into question whether they believe the truth. Remember way back in chapter 1, verse 16, Paul said about these false teachers, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And Paul lays out, this person should be warned once, and if they don't listen, warn them a second time. If they don't respond to that, exclude them from the fellowship of the church. Have nothing more to do with them. This person has abandoned truth because good works flow from the gospel. Has brought this on himself. There is a corporate application for us here regarding church discipline. If we are Christians, we must do good to all people. Hopefully that's clear. We must be characterized by good works. 
So what happens when our lives begin to not line up with what we say we believe? What happens when we begin to be characterized by sin rather than good works? Well, ideally what happens, because that will happen, is that a brother or sister confronts us and we respond in repentance and we're restored. But what happens when we don't respond in repentance? And then we're confronted again and we don't respond in repentance. Matthew 18 also lays out a process for this. Jesus talks about this very idea and it mirrors what Paul is talking about here. Multiple chances, multiple confrontations, seeking repentance, but the outcome of unrepentance is the same. Excommunication. Exclude this person from the fellowship because now they're compromising the witness. Now this person who claims to follow Jesus but is characterized by sin rather than good works is harming the witness and dishonoring the name of Jesus. Excommunication sounds harsh. Why is it such a big deal? Because we must take sin seriously. Because sin is primarily an offense against the holy God. We cannot tolerate that in our midst. We cannot be characterized by sin as Jesus' people. We must be characterized by good works. doesn't mean we won't sin. Absolutely, we're going to sin, but we must live lives of repentance. Quick illustration, and then I'll close things out here. We have a small fire pit at our house. Uh, we like to do campfires uh, in the summer, and we have done one yet in the fall, but hopefully before the snow flies, we get another one in. Uh, suppose I say to you, hey, we had a campfire last night. You should have been there. You missed out. It was great. You know, we roasted some marshmallows, made some s'mores, uh, and you know, you're feeling all bad that you weren't there. And then you come to my house this afternoon, and you take a glance in my backyard, and you say, uh, I don't see any ashes. Uh, there's no burnt logs. It doesn't even look like the fire pit has been used in a while. You're going to rightly discern, based on the evidence, that we did not have a fire last night. There's no evidence, because if we did have a fire in the fire pit, there would be evidence for you to see. If a person genuinely believes the gospel, you will find evidence of that. Their life will be characterized by good works. Christians are concerned with doing good to others because God has been good to us. So I'll conclude this sermon the same way Paul concludes his letter to Titus. Verse 12. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. I love Paul. He's just kind of like moving the chess pieces, you know, care for these people. These guys are coming through. Make sure they have what they need. These people are coming. Get them where they need to be. Gospel ministry. And then, as if he hasn't said it enough... In this short letter of only 46 verses, he ends on the note of verse 14. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. God's grace revealed in the gospel leads to godliness in the lives of his people. We must do good because of God's goodness to us. 
Father, we are just humbled.